Today is June the 22nd, 2022, the first full day of summer in 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and the other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Google says it's time for users to pay for G Suite services. Google said the longtime users of what it calls its G Suite Legacy Free Edition, which includes email and apps like Docs and Calendar, had to start paying a monthly charge, usually around $6 for each business email address. Businesses that do not voluntarily switch to a paid service by June the 27th will be automatically moved to one. If they don't pay by August the 1st, their accounts will be suspended. While the cost of the paid service is more of an annoyance than a hard financial hit, small business owners affected by the change say they have been disappointed by the way that Google has dealt with the process. After a number of long-time users complained about the change to a paid service, an initial May 1st deadline was delayed. Google also said people using old accounts for personal rather than business reasons, could continue to do so for free. But some business owners said that as they mulled over whether to pay Google or abandoned services, they struggled to get in touch with customer support. Google said that the free edition didn't include customer support, but that it provided users with multiple ways to get in touch with a company for help with their transition, although they did not define what ways were available to get in touch with the company? How have the user community reacted to constant changes in the Google product line? One user expressed it best. It was less about the amount they're charging and more about the fact that they changed the rules. They could change the rules again at any time. The evolution of Google Workspace. Google launched Gmail in 2004 and business apps such as Docs and Sheets two years later. The search giant was eager for startups and mom-and-pop shops to adopt its work software, so it offered the services at no cost and let companies bring custom domains that matched their business names to Gmail. Google Apps consisted of Gmail, Meet, Chat, Calendar, Drive, Docs, Sheets, Slides, Forms, Sites, Keep, AppScript, CloudSearch, Jamboard, Admin, Endpoint, Vault, Work Insights, Classrooms, and Assignments. I must admit that many of them I've never heard of and I have not tried it. But I am familiar with the main ones, which is Gmail and Docs. Many of these apps have underwent name rebranding, and therefore many of the users, like me, just haven't kept up with them at all. These apps were grouped together called Google Apps for Work. 
and rebranded as G Suite in 2016 before becoming the Google workspace we now know today in 2020 by bundling Gmail, Docs, Meet, Sheets, and Calendar, along with some extra perks. Google stopped offering the legacy free edition as of December 2012, but still allowed existing users to access its services for free as a courtesy. It is called SaaS, that is to say, Software as a Service product that combines Google tools into groups for collaboration and productivity based on the cloud. The most prominent users include institutes, businesses, and nonprofits. Each subscription provides access to sites, Gmail addresses, Sheets, Docs, Slides, Drive, Calendar, and much more. In 2020, G Suite was rebranded as Google Workspace. The overwhelming majority of people, the company says it has more than 3 billion total users, use a free version of Workspace. More than 7 million organizations or individuals pay for versions with additional tools and customer support, up from 6 million in 2020. The number of users still on the free legacy version from years ago have numbered in the thousands. Google rebranded G Suite in October of 2020, and you might wonder, what is Google Workspace? If you use any of the Google services, odds are you've seen the name Google Workspace floating around. By now, you probably found yourself Googling, what is Google Workspace? In short, Google Workspace is a rebranding of G Suite, Google's main hub for its office productivity and collaboration tools, but there are a few changes to how the service works. Google rebranded G Suite's name to Google Workspace in October of 2020 to reflect a change in the app suite, which added tighter integration between its apps. Other than its name, not much has changed, but there are a few differences in how Workspace functions. Workspace is Google's suite of Office tools and apps. Think of it as Google's version of Microsoft Office. It lets you access all of Google's productivity tools, including its Office apps, Docs, Sheets, and Slides, all in one place. Plus, it adds some business-oriented features, such as custom domains for email addresses and the option for unlimited Google Drive storage. Google Workspace is the new name of G Suite. Google Workspace is out to compete with Microsoft Office. Adobe is releasing a free version of Photoshop. Adobe said it has begun offering its free version of Photoshop to users in Canada. Adobe has begun releasing a free version of Photoshop online and plans to make the service more widely available. The company is currently testing a free version of the popular photo editing software in Canada where users can access Photoshop by setting up a free Adobe account. Adobe says the free version will include its basic core functions, like being able to refine edges, curves, and convert smart objects. The more advanced features will be exclusive to paying subscribers who wish to get more out of the software. Adobe wants to make Photoshop more accessible and easier for more people to try it out and experience it. The free version will be operable on Chrome and Edge browsers only. 
Its compatibility means Chrome users will no longer be reliant on Photoshop Express to edit photos. Users wanting access to all of Photoshop's features will need to subscribe through Adobe. The company offers a tier plan starting with $10 a month and 20 gigabytes of storage. Meta is getting data about you from some surprising places. Meta is probably someone you're more familiar with the name Facebook. The Pixel tracking system collects and sends site visitor data to Meta, and Meta can match this to a user's profile on Facebook or Instagram. You can't see them, but Meta's trackers are embedded in millions of websites all over the internet, collecting data about where you go and what you do and sending it back to Meta. A recent investigation shows that those trackers are on sites that even the most cynical among us might expect to be off-limits, those belonging to hospitals, including patient portals that are supposed to be protected by HIPAA laws or health privacy laws. The Markup, a nonprofit news outlet that covers technology harms, has been publishing the latest findings of its investigation into Meta's pixels, which are pieces of code developers can embed on websites to track their visitors. So far, those stories reveal how websites owned by the government, pregnancy counseling centers, and hospitals are sending data to Meta through pixels, much of which would be considered sensitive to the users who unwittingly provided it. It's easy and understandable to blame Meta for this, given the company's much-deserved, less-than-stellar reputation on user privacy. In Pixel and other trackers, Meta has played an instrumental role in building the privacy-free, data-leaking online world we must navigate today. The company supplies a tracking system designed to suck up user data from millions of sites and spin it into advertising gold, and it knows very well that there are many cases where the tool was implemented poorly at best and abused at worst. But this may also be a rare case of a meta-related privacy scandal that isn't entirely Meta's fault, partly because Meta has done its best to place that blame elsewhere. Or as security researcher Zach Edwards put it, Meta or Facebook wants to have their data cake and not eat the violations too. Businesses choose to put Meta's trackers on their websites and apps, and they choose again which data about their visitors to send up to social media giant. There's simply no good excuse in this day and age for developers that use Meta's business tools not to understand how they work or what user data is being sent through them. At the very least, developers shouldn't put them on health appointment scheduling pages or inside patient portals, which users have every reason to expect not to be secretly sending their data to nosy third parties because they're often explicitly told by those sites they aren't. Meta created a monster, but those websites are feeding it. How Pixel Makes Tracking Too Easy Meta makes Pixel available, free of charge, to businesses to embed in their sites. Pixel collects and sends site visitor data to Meta, and Meta can match this to a user profile on Facebook or Instagram giving it that much more insight into that user. There are also cases 
where Meta collects data about people who don't even have Meta accounts. Some data, like a visitor's IP address, is collected by Meta automatically. But developers can also set Pixel up to track what is called events, actions users take on the site. That may include links they click on or responses in the form they fill out, and it helps businesses better understand users or focus on specific behaviors or actions. All this data can then be used to target ads at those people or to create what's known as look-alike audiences. This involves a business asking Meta to send ads to people who Meta believes are similar to its existing customers. The more data Meta gets from businesses through those trackers, the better it should be able to target ads. Meta may also use that data to improve its own products and services. Businesses may use pixel data for analytics to improve their products and services as well. Businesses or the third-party vendors, they contract to build out their sites or run advertising campaigns, have a lot of control over what data about their customers Meta gets. The markup discovered that on some of the sites in its report, hospital website appointment pages were sending Meta the name of someone making an appointment, the date and time of the appointment, and which doctor the patient is seeing. If that's happening, that's because someone on the hospital end set Pixel up to do that. Either the hospital didn't do its due diligence to protect that data, or it didn't consider it to be data worth protecting. Or perhaps it assumed that Meta's tools would stop the company from collecting or using any sensitive data that was sent to it. In its most recent hospital investigation, the markup found that a third of the hospitals it looked at from a list of the top 100 hospitals in the country had a pixel on appointment scheduling pages, and seven health systems had pixels in their patients' portals. Several of the websites removed pixel after being contacted by the markup. How can a hospital justify any of this? The only hospital that gave the markup a detailed response, the Houston Methodist, claimed that it didn't believe it was sending protected health information to Meta. The markup found that the hospital site told Meta when someone clicked scheduled appointment, which doctor they scheduled the appointment for, and even that doctor was found by searching home abortion. But Houston Methodist said scheduling an appointment didn't mean the appointment was ever confirmed, nor that the person who scheduled the appointment was the person the appointment was actually for. Houston Methodist might think it isn't violating patient privacy, but its patients may very well feel differently. But they also have no way of knowing this was happening in the first place, without using special tools or having a certain level of technical knowledge. Houston Methodist has since removed the pixel. Another health system the markup looked at, Novant Health, said in a statement that the pixel was placed by a third-party vendor for a campaign to get more people to sign up for its patient portal system and was only used to see how many people signed up. But the markup found far more data than that was being sent to Meta, including medications that users listed and the sexual orientations. That third-party vendor appears to have made some mistakes here, but Novant, the one that has a duty to its patients to keep the information private on websites, 
that promised to do so, not the third-party vendor, and not Meta. This is not to let Meta off the hook. Again, it created the Pixel tracking system, and while it has rules and tools that are supposed to prevent certain types of sensitive information, like health conditions, from being sent to it, the markups reports are evidence that those measures aren't enough. Meta told Recode in a statement that our system is designed to filter out potentially sensitive data it detects. But the markup found those filters lacking when it came to data from at least one crisis pregnancy center's website. Meta didn't respond to Recode's questions about what it does if it finds that a business is violating its rules. Edwards, a security researcher, was even less charitable about how much blame Meta should get here. It's 100% Facebook's fault, in my opinion, he said. Meta also didn't respond to questions from Recode asking what it does to ensure businesses are following its policies or what it does with the sensitive information businesses aren't supposed to send it. As it stands, it looks as though Meta is making and distributing a tracking tool that can materially benefit Meta. But if that tool is exploited or used incorrectly, someone else is responsible. The only people who pay the price for that, it seems, are the site visitors whose privacy is unknowingly invaded. What you can do to avoid Pixel. There are few things you can do to protect yourself here. Browsers like Safari, Firefox, and Brave offer tracker blockers. Todd Feathers, one of the reporters on the markup hospital story, told Recode they use Chrome browsers with no privacy extensions for their tests. Speaking of the privacy extensions, you can get those too. VPNs and Apple's paid private relay service can obscure your IP address from the sites you visit. Finally, Meta has controls that limit tracking and ad targeting off of its platforms. The company claims that turning off data about your activity from partners or off Facebook activity will stop it from using data collected by Pixel from being used to target ads to you. This means placing some trust in Meta, of course, you're not going to do that, that its privacy tools do what it claims they do. There's always, of course, asking your lawmaker to push for privacy laws that would make some of these practices explicitly illegal or forcing companies to inform and get user consent before collecting and sending their data to anyone else. A few new federal privacy bills have recently been introduced. The interest is there among some members of Congress, but not enough of them to come close to passing anything yet. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Multiple screen monitors for better workflow. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time to talk about computers, technology, and your workplace. Cynthia reached out to me. You can reach out to me, too. Here, care of the show. Just reach out to the show, and uh, and yes, I will answer your computer and tech questions as they apply to whatever, usually the you know, business. So um, in this case, Cynthia says, I've heard you talk about 
multiple monitors before and better workflow. Do you suggest that everyone have them? How are they used? How do you request them at the office? All right, so there's a lot to unpack here, but I'm going to try and do this as quickly as I can. Yes, I want you to imagine you have your desk at the office. You have your, uh, your desk all set up for all kinds of different tasks that you do throughout the day. And what has happened in many companies is you have a 19-inch wide desk. That's not a lot of space. That is very little space, really. It is that, you know, it's, we're talking about it's, it's the size of an elementary schooler's, you know, that, that little desk that they sit in and they, their, their feet are dangling and it wraps around and they've got their armrest off to the side, which really annoys the lefties who don't have their own desk. If you imagine that in your mind, you have that as your computer monitor. It's, it's small. It doesn't allow you to work on multiple projects at once. It allows you to work on one thing at a time. And this is part of uh, it, this is part of how this all works. I'm telling you what you get when you start adding in more monitors, especially when you start adding in larger monitors. So, uh, you might have a resolution of 1920 by 1080. In my case, what I have for my work desktop, and it's actually a laptop, but but the the space that is involved, the work desktop, lowercase d versus desktop computer, I have two 24-inch monitors that are roughly, uh, and I'm doing this off the top of my head, I think they're 2560 by 1200. So they're, uh, they're 24 inches, but they're a higher resolution, so I can put on more information onto each screen. Plus, then I have my 1920 by 1080 laptop screen all the way over to the right. So I've got on the left and in the center, I've got these 24-inch screens, and then a third screen off to the right. So scrolling across. Now, how do I use these? How, how do I personally utilize them? And what that is, is on the furthest to the left, I utilize half of the screen as a reference screen. And that is where I look up certain items. My action items for it, for one of our main applications where I work, it sits on the next section over. It actually occupies about not quite not quite two thirds of the screen, but a little bit more than half. So I've got my reference, I've got my action items with our key software that I work with, and then we move to the center monitor. I have my email. And that occupies roughly, again, well, I'm going to say 60% of the screen. Not really two-thirds, but 60% of the screen. And another 40% that occupy, is occupied by my, my other communication device, which is Teams. So I've got all of my communications are going in my central monitor. My job focus is a lot of communications. My job focus is really communicating a lot with people. 
I utilize that right monitor, the, the laptop screen, all the way over there for things that are still pending, things that are waiting for responses. The, the window is open. It reminds me that it's there. I can go over there and I can say somebody's been waiting for this and I can bring that on over. So this is how I've set it up. Each of these monitors has their own section on the monitor. The entire setup all the way across is how my workflow works. And it's fast because I know where everything is and I don't have to hit Alt-Tab to scroll through the different screens that I've got going. I can cut and paste very efficiently between each of these different screens across the entire span. That makes things faster. And I do suggest that everyone at least look into the ability to widen your desk and move from that elementary school small little desk into an office size desk. Something that is a matter of you know, four or five feet wide, six feet, eight feet wide. You know, that just monstrous, you know, the executive style desk. So how do you request this at the office? I will tell you, if you can present this, everybody does it a little bit differently, but usually it's presented in the form of, I can move faster if I can see what I'm working with and how I'm replying at the same time. I can talk to what I'm looking at. I can talk to the reference when I'm communicating on a regular basis without having to switch back and forth. This is a time-consuming effort to switch back and forth, and I think I will be more productive if I have this available to me. I had somebody request it exactly like this, or close enough, and it worked. And it worked not only for him, but for the entire company. So give it a shot. Reach out if that doesn't work. We've got some other ideas as well. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Record-breaking Voyager spacecrafts. Historical. The pioneering probes are still running after nearly 45 years in space, but they will soon lose some of their instruments. Back in 1965, an aeronautics doctoral student at Caltech named Gary Flandro had been tasked with finding the most efficient way to send a space probe to Jupiter or perhaps out to Saturn, Uranus, or, or Neptune. He charted the orbital paths of those giant planets and discovered something intriguing. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, all four would be strung like pearls on a celestial necklace in a long arc with Earth. This coincidence meant that a space vehicle could get a speed boost from the gravitational pull of each giant planet it passed, as if being tugged along by an invisible cord that snapped at the last second, flinging the probe on its way. Flandrov calculated that the repeated gravity assist, as they are called, would cut the flight time between Earth and Neptune from 30 years to 12. There was just one catch. The alignment happened only once every 176 years. To reach the planets while the lineup lasted, a spacecraft would have to be launched by the mid-1970s. As it turned out, 
NASA would build two space vehicles to take advantage of that once-in-a-more-than-a-lifetime opportunity, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, identical in every detail, were launched within 15 days of each other in the summer of 1977. After nearly 45 years in space, they're still functioning, sending data back to Earth every day from beyond the solar system's most distant known planets. They have traveled further and lasted longer than any other spacecraft in history, and they have crossed into interstellar space. Voyager missions were originally planned to last just four years. Early in their travels, four decades ago, the Voyagers gave astonished researchers the first close-up views of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, revealing the existence of active volcanoes and fissured ice fields on worlds astronomers had thought would be as inert and crater-pocked as our own moon. In 1986, Voyager 2 became the first spacecraft to fly past Uranus. Three years later, it passed Neptune. Now, as pioneering interstellar probes more than 12 billion miles from Earth, they're simultaneously delighting and confounding theorists with a series of unexpected discoveries about that uncharted region. Their remarkable odyssey is finally winding down, however. This year, NASA plans to begin turning off some of the Voyager's systems, eking out the spacecraft's remaining energy stores to extend their unprecedented journey to about 2030. Amazing. For the Voyager scientists, they are now confronting the end of a project that far exceeded all the expectations. After Gary Flandro's report, NASA drew up plans for a so-called grand tour that would send as many as five probes to the four giant planets and Pluto. It was ambitious. It was expensive. Of course, you know what Congress did, right? They turned it down, because of course. So it was cut back. Congress eventually approved a scaled-down version of the grand tour. Initially, two spacecraft were to be sent to just two planets, Jupiter and Saturn. Nevertheless, NASA engineers went about designing vehicles capable of withstanding the rigors of a much longer mission. They hoped that once the twin probes proved themselves, their itinerary would be extended to Uranus, Neptune, and beyond. Four years, that was the prime mission. The fact that the scientists were able to build two spacecraft, and that both are still working today, is even more remarkable. The Golden Record each Voyager carries a golden record of sounds and images from Earth in case the spacecraft are intercepted by an extraterrestrial civilization. In those days, we always launched two spacecrafts because the failure rate was so high. When the Voyagers were being built, only one spacecraft had used a gravity assist to reach another planet. The Mariner 10 probe got one from Venus while en route to Mercury but the Voyagers would be attempting multiple assists with margins of errors measured in tens of minutes. Jupiter, their first stop, was about ten times further from Earth than Mercury. However, the Voyagers would have to travel through the asteroid belt along the way. Before Voyager, there had been a big debate about whether spacecraft could get through the asteroid belt without being torn to pieces. The belt turned out to be mostly empty space, paving the way for Voyager. To handle all these challenges, 
The voyages, each about the size of an old Volkswagen Beetle, needed some onboard intelligence. So NASA's engineers equipped the vehicle's computers with 69 kilobytes of memory. That's 69,000 bytes of memory. You know what? That's less than the capacity of a floppy diskette. The Voyager computers have less memory than the key fob that opens your car door. All the data collected by the spacecraft instruments would be stored on 8-track tape recorders and then sent back to Earth by a 23-watt transmitter about the power level of a refrigerator light bulb. To compensate for the weak transmitter, both Voyagers carry a 12-foot wide dish antenna to send and receive signals. Within four years, the team had built three spacecraft, including one full-scale functioning test model. The spacecraft were rechristened Voyager 1 and 2 a few months before launch. Voyager 1 reached Jupiter in March of 1979, 546 days after its launch. Voyager 2, which followed afterwards, arrived in July of that year. Well, with Voyager 1, standing room crowds at Jet Propulsion Lab watched as the spacecraft started transmitting the first pictures of Jupiter while still about three or four months away from the planet. As the data came down line by line, each picture would appear on a monitor the growing anticipation and expectation was tremendously exciting. The first glimpse of Jupiter's third largest moon, Lo, that's L-O, was all orange and black, to everyone's surprise. Lo's colorful appearance was completely unexpected. Before the voyages prove otherwise, the assumption had been that all moons in the solar system would be more or less alike, drab and cratered. No one anticipated the wild diversity of moonscapes the voyagers would discover around Jupiter and Saturn. The voyagers' cameras captured low with active volcanoes. The small world, it is slightly larger than Earth's moon, and it's now known to be the most volcanically active body in the solar system. The only active volcanoes we knew at the time were on Earth. Here suddenly was a moon that had ten times as much volcanic activity as Earth. Lowe's colors came from elements blasted from the moon's volcanoes. The largest of Lowe's volcanoes, known as Paley, had blown out plumes 30 times the height of Mount Everest. Debris from Paley covered an area about the size of France. Although the voyagers took more than 33,000 photographs of Jupiter and its satellites, it felt like every image brought a new discovery. Jupiter had rings. Europa, one of Jupiter's 53 named moons, was covered with a cracked icy crust now estimated to be more than 60 miles thick. As the spacecraft left the Jupiter system, they got a farewell kick of 35,700 miles per hour from a gravity assist. Without it, they would not have been able to overcome the gravitational pull of the sun and reach interstellar space. At Saturn, the Voyagers parted company. Voyager 1 hurtled through Saturn's rings, taking thousands of hits from dust grains, flew past Titan, a moon shrouded in orange smog, and then headed north out of the plane of the planets. Voyager 2, however, continued alone 
to Uranus and Neptune. In 1986, Voyager 2 found 10 new moons around Uranus and added the planet to the growing list of ring worlds, just four days after Voyager 2's closest approach to Uranus. Three years later, passing about 2,980 miles above Neptune's methane atmosphere, Voyager 2 measured the highest wind speed of any planet in the solar system, up to 1,000 miles per hour. Neptune's largest moon, Triton, was found to be one of the coldest places in the solar system, with a surface temperature of minus 390 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 235 degrees Celsius. Ice volcanoes on the moon spewed nitrogen gas and powdery particles five miles into its atmosphere. Voyager 2's images of Neptune and its moons would have been the last taken by either of the spacecraft had it not been for astronomer Carl Sagan, who was a member of the mission's imaging team. With the grand tour officially completed, NASA planned to turn off the cameras on both probes. Although the mission had been extended with the hope that the Voyagers would make it to interstellar space, it had been officially renamed Voyager Interstellar Mission. There would be no photo ops after Neptune, only the endless void and impossibly distant stars. Carl Sagan urged NASA officials to have Voyager 1 transmit one last series of images. So on Valentine's Day in 1990, the probe aimed its cameras back towards the inner solar system and took 60 final shots. The most haunting of them all, made famous by Sagan as the pale blue dot, capture Earth from a distance of 3.8 billion miles, it remains the most distant portrait of our planet ever taken. Veiled by sunlight that reflected off the camera's optics, Earth is barely visible in the image. It doesn't occupy even a full pixel. Both voyages are now so far from Earth that a one-way radio signal traveling at the speed of light takes almost 22 hours to reach Voyager 1 and just over 18 to catch up with Voyager 2. Every day, they move away by another three to four light seconds. Their only link to Earth is NASA's Deep Space Network, a trio of tracking complexes spaced around the globe that enables uninterrupted communication as Earth rotates. As the voyages recede from us in space and time, their signals are becoming even fainter. Some things outlive their purpose. Answering machines, VCRs, well, not the Voyagers, they transcended theirs using 50-year-old technology. The amount of software on these instruments is slim to none. There are no microprocessors. They didn't exist. The Voyagers designers could not rely on thousands of lines of code to help operate the spacecraft. The mission lasted so long because almost everything was hardwired. It won't be easy to say goodbye to these trailblazing vehicles. It's hard to see it come to an end. But we did achieve something really amazing. Voyager 2 now has five remaining functioning instruments, and Voyager 1 has four. All are powered by a device that converts heat from the radioactive decay of plutonium into electricity. But with the power output decreasing by about four watts a year, NASA has been forced into triage mode. 
Two years ago, mission engineers turned off the heater for the cosmic ray detector. Everyone expected the instrument to die. The temperature dropped like 60 to 7 degrees centigrade, well outside any tested operating limits. And, to everyone's surprise, the instruments kept working. It was incredible. The last two Voyager instruments to turn off will probably be a magnetometer and the plasma science instrument. They are contained in the body of the spacecraft, where they are warmed by the heat emitted from computers. The other instruments are suspended on a 43-foot-long fiberglass boom, so when you turn the heaters off, those instruments get very, very cold. So how much longer might the voyages last? If everything goes really well, maybe we can get the missions extended into the 2030s. It just depends on the power. That's the limiting point. Even after the voyages are completely muted, their journeys will continue. In another 16,700 years, Voyager will pass our nearest neighboring star, Proxima Centauri, followed 3,600 years later by Voyager 2. Then they will continue to circle the galaxy for millions of years, and they will still be out there more or less intact, eons after our sun has collapsed, and also, not to mention, one pale blue dot. At some point in their travels, they may manage to convey a final message. It won't be transmitted by radio, and if it's received, the recipients won't be human. The message is carried on another kind of vintage technology, two records. Not your standard plastic version, though. These are made of copper, coated with gold, and sealed in an aluminum cover, encoded in the grooves of the golden records, as they are called. Are images and sounds meant to give some sense of the world the voyages came from? Of course, this goes back to 1977. These are pictures of children, dolphins, dancers, and sunsets. The sounds of crickets, falling rain, and a mother kissing a child, and 90 minutes of music, including Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 2 and Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. And there's a message from Jimmy Carter, who was the United States president when the voyages were launched. We cast this message into the cosmos, it read in part. We hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilization. This record represents our hope and our determination and our goodwill in a vast and awesome universe. One final note. Back in August the 4th of 2020, the data which was released by the Census Bureau and analyzed by Brookings Institution reveals that more than 50% of the U.S. population is under the age of 45. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Effectiveness of Various Home Security Devices. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, you and I have talked about home automation a lot. And uh, along the way... Well, now, wait, wait a minute. Anybody out there bored? You want to hear some more? No <laughs> objections. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> oh, wow. Just, you know, I, I happen to enjoy home automation. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I've been struggling with, uh, like the Nest cameras and Blink cameras and... The ring. Uh, the ring, yeah, the same kind of thing. The, the doorbells. 
uh, I've been struggling to find one that actually uh, that I like. Uh, and uh, well, it would help if they all didn't look like something that isn't a doorbell. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't in the design mind, I'm sure. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, I, I did a little bit of homework into burglaries at home. Yeah. OK. And and uh, there any any indication that there's somebody inside will discourage most events. They'll go yeah. to another house. They won't stop being burglars, but they'll go somewhere else. Sure. Well, I mean, that's no offense to my neighbors. If any of you are listening, I, I, I don't really care about your house. I care about the tech that's inside my house. I want to protect my house. And so do we. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. Go ahead. I'm well, sorry. But home burglaries are a big deal. There's uh, actual accomplished bur burglaries in the U.S., 1.6 million a year. Whoa. Okay. I had no idea. That's that's a lot of burglaries. Yeah. Having a doorbell there and a voice that responds to say, hey, can I help you? Or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. That is a major deterrent. People mm -hmm. are less likely to go inside. They don't know if you've got a countermeasure or, or don't have a countermeasure. Sure, yeah. Uh, if the TV starts playing loud or you hear channels changing or people arguing or barking dogs, 34% deterrent. 34%, that's a third of them stop if they hear a dog bark. Okay, and I'm presuming that's not a chihuahua sound. <laughs> Well, it might be because they're annoying. Oh, uh, yeah, well, okay. Oh man, I can't. I I couldn't. I can't spend five minutes listening to that stupid little yap. And, and to all to all of the listeners who own Chihuahuas, my apologies. <laughs> not not for what I said, but because you have to listen to that yap. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Go on, Marty. And Sanko de Mayo, and never mind. Sixty-one <laughs> percent. Of okay. U.S. homes have no dog. Okay. So, I think these are good reasons to build a dog, don't you? Build you a dog. Okay. So, so forget about the about your your nest or uh, or ring doorbell. You you develop a motion sensor with a dog barking. A motion sensor that triggers the sound of a dog barking through a strong enough amplifier and a good enough speaker that it mm -hmm. sounds like a real dog and not, I'm on a recording of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about there. Okay, yeah, yeah, and all right. Look, for, for, for everybody out there who's in the maker community, mm -hmm. if you got a Raspberry Pi, you want to put a passive infrared or a LIDAR or, or even, you know, we talked about that rich wave radar chip. You, anything yeah, yeah, yeah. to detect when somebody's there triggers the sound going through the amplifier. Now, hint number one, whatever dog you choose to be your spokes dog, mm -hmm. do not change to a different dog mid playback. When you choose your dog uh, recording, I suggest you do not choose Scooby-Doo. Raggy? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. All right. So, all right. This is, this is interesting. I, I had no idea that many burglaries. So, it, so, it, it, 
do they have other statistics? Like, does a light turning on discourage people or? Uh, no. Really? Don't expect that. And by the way, most burglaries are daytime. Okay. Because nobody's home at most homes. Except these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, COVID, yeah, work from yeah. home. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, sure. to be clear, a sound from inside a house will not discourage a porch pirate. Yeah, okay. Uh, what might discourage a porch pirate is a trap door in, uh, in the porch that uh, gets them caught down there for a while or a, a, a series of bars that drop down and calls the police uh, or... Or maybe a, a large projector on one of those uh, steam screen things that shows his picture up in the air so the neighbors can see. Have you seen me? I've just <laughs> stolen stuff. You know, that might work. <laughs> yeah, you know, that reminds me of the, there's a video that uh, went around on YouTube about two, the three years ago. scientist, yes. The guy, yeah, he rigged it up so that the, the guy, you know, grabbed the package, took it on home, opened it up. And he got the guy on camera and it just explodes everywhere. <laughs> Sticky glitter. Yes, yes. yes. How do you explain it, that to your daughter? <laughs> well, as, as it happens, yeah. that wasn't enough evidence for the police. The police could not make a criminal offense without catching them in action. And uh, okay, because uh, well, uh, but it's on video though. I mean, it's I know it's you a misdemeanor, but maybe but misdemeanor on video is I don't I, what, what whatever the reasons. You know, there's a cost of prosecution. No offense to cops, but, you know, I know there are some that they get a little bit. Eh, we, we don't want to chase down this road because it's too much effort. Well, I'm not know. sure it's effort. It, 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 it's often not fruitful. Yeah. Who knows? Anyway. But, but, but yeah, you, you do what you can to protect yourself from the problem in the first place. Right. And, and not to be crass about it, but technology sometimes costs less than ammunition. Especially these days. Yeah, wow. This is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winston. You're listening to Computer Talk Radio. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Marty. The 46th annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March the 19th of this year. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded and they are available and free for download at the following website, tcf-nj.org. And the main page of that website will direct you to the portal site. Public service announcements of computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation, Learn All About a VPN, Thursday, June the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, July 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. The Westchester PC Users Group meets Thursday, July the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. 
and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, July 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, July 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number to call is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, July the 14th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key. And on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.